0: Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Dave McKechnie, standing in this week for Chris Dooley. Later, I'll speak to Mark Bice in Jerusalem about the political stalemate in Israel and ask whether last week's election spelled the beginning of the end for Benjamin Netanyahu. But first, to Brexit. These weeks have not been short on drama, but even by recent standards, the UK Supreme Court's unanimous ruling in London this morning that the government's proroguing of Parliament was unlawful was an extraordinary moment and a constitutional bombshell. In the judgment, the Court's President, Lady Hale, said that the Court was entitled to rule on the matter, that the prorogation was not normal, that it prevented Parliament from carrying out its constitutional duty for five weeks before Brexit Day, and that the effect upon the fundamentals of our democracy was extreme.
1: This was not a normal prorogation in the run-up to a Queen's speech. It prevented Parliament from carrying out its constitutional role for five out of the possible eight weeks between the end of the summer recess and exit day on the 31st of October. The effect on the fundamentals of our democracy was extreme. No justification for taking action with such an extreme effect has been put before the Court.
0: Speaking outside Parliament about an hour later... Speaker John Barkow said that the House will sit tomorrow morning at 11.30 a.m.
2: In the light of that explicit judgment, I have instructed the House authorities to prepare, not for the recall, the prorogation was unlawful and is void, to prepare for the resumption of the business of the House of Commons. Specifically, I've instructed the House authorities to undertake such steps as are necessary to ensure that the House of Commons sits tomorrow and
1: that it does so at 11.30 a.m.
0: In New York a short time ago, Boris Johnson said that although the government would respect the ruling, he strongly disagreed with it. Well, as I say, I strongly disagree with this uh, decision of the, of the Supreme Court. I have the utmost respect for our judiciary. I don't think this was the right decision.
2: I think that uh, the prerogative of prorogation has been used for for centuries uh, without this kind of uh, without this kind of challenge. It's perfectly usual to have a, a Queen's speech. That's what we want to do. But more importantly, let's be in no doubt: uh, there are a lot of people who want to frustrate Brexit. There are a lot of people who basically want to stop this country coming out of the EU. And we have a, a parliament that is unable to uh, be prorogued, unable to uh, doesn't want to have an election, uh, and I think it's time we took things forward.
0: To look at what this judgment means for Boris Johnson, his government, and for Brexit, I'm joined on the line by London editor Dennis Staunton. Dennis, listening to Boris Johnson's comments there, he says there are a lot of people who want to frustrate Brexit. There was a a hint of enemies of the people about that one. Um, He seemed to be suggesting that the judiciary is not impartial. Is that a a route he's going down?
2: Well, it's it's a curious thing for him to say on the one hand, because part of the government's argument was that proroguing parliament had nothing to do with brexit the only reason that they tried to suspend parliament for five weeks was to get ready to uh, give a queen's speech and set out a new legislative agenda so uh, but as you say he was saying that a lot of people are trying to uh, to thwart brexit and that does seem to chime with his political message, which is to set up a general election based on the idea of the people against parliament. And now it appears to be the people against parliament and the judges. And uh, what he said uh, in New York was that uh, he disagreed with this judgment. Now, the the fact is that the ruling was unanimous by the Supreme Court. Uh, It is the law. And so he's saying, I accept it, but I disagree with the law. And so uh, so he seems to be setting up this hierarchy where the will of the people, as expressed in the 2016 referendum and as interpreted by Boris Johnson, is superior both to the will of parliament and to the law. And that would be a, a pretty uh, you know, bold populist message to be going into an election with.
0: Now, if we look, uh, first of all, at this mo- at this morning's judgment, uh, what were the most significant parts or perhaps, perhaps the most damaging parts?
2: I think one of the most important parts was that it was unanimous, because the fact that it was a unanimous verdict means that actually there isn't all that much room for Boris Johnson's supporters to start picking holes in it and suggesting that uh, there's some ambiguity about it. The second thing was that, you know, it was asked, uh, you know, it had to answer really three questions. The first is, can... the the court decide on this whole question about whether Parliament can be prorogued in this way or not, and it said it could. Then it had to ask, is this unlawful? And it said, yes, it is unlawful. And it said it was unlawful because uh, the purpose of or, or the effect, rather, of the prorogation of, for five weeks was to prevent MPs from doing their constitutional job of holding the executive to account. And then it had to answer the question, if it's unlawful, what do we do about it? And the answer to that was you can reopen parliament uh as soon as you like because it was never really closed and so it's saying that this uh prorogation was uh you know it's it it was not void it's as if it never happened and so the way uh lady hale the president of the supreme court put it it was like a a blank sheet of paper it has no meaning whatsoever i think the most damaging thing where boris johnson is concerned is that it was very specific about uh the effect of the thing and also about the fact that a prorogation for a queen's speech. It's normally just a few days long and that you know, it can't be used by the executive to somehow get around what Parliament wants to do. And that could become important in a few weeks' time because there is this bill, the uh, an Act of Parliament, the, the Benn Act, which says that if Boris Johnson hasn't got a deal from the European Union by the 19th of October, he is obliged by law to ask the European Union to delay Brexit by a further three months. So until the end of January uh, of 2020. And he has been very ambiguous. He's, he's continued to insist that he's not going to write that letter. But obviously uh, what this ruling means is that, first of all, Parliament will be sitting during that time, but also that the judges will take a very, very harsh view of any attempt that he makes to somehow circumvent the law.
0: So I suppose, uh, does that mean we can expect perhaps a lower risk approach from him uh, from from here, especially around that issue?
2: Well, I think it's it's not so much uh, whether he's unwilling to take a risk. I think it's just that he's cornered in a way, because, uh, you know, if you think about what he wanted to do, the reason that he prorogued Parliament in the first place and and suspended it for five weeks was because he didn't want Parliament to be sitting for the next few weeks. And then he wanted to have a general election. So Parliament wasn't going to uh, be allowed to interfere with uh, you know, with what he was trying to do in terms of Brexit, but also that uh, he would try to have an election. In fact, he's been frustrated on every count because Parliament won't give him his general election. And so he's stuck in Parliament and the, the courts won't allow him to shut Parliament down. And what the courts appear to be saying today is we are also going to keep an eye on you. And if you try to get around your legal obligations in terms of this Act of Parliament, we won't let you. So uh, it's, you know, he's sounding, uh, you know, as you just heard in that clip from New York, he's sounding still very bullish, very populist, drilled, is still trying to set this up as a conflict between those who are trying to, uh, you know, to get Brexit done, people like him, and those who are trying to frustrate Brexit. But I think just, you know, regardless of how bullish he is, he's coming up against certain facts. and These facts are that he has almost nowhere to go.
0: Now, I mean, there are some suggestions that it could have been worse for him. that The court declined to consider his motives uh, in calling the prorogation and, and therefore consider w- whether he misled the Queen. But this ruling is nonetheless an uh, uncomfortable position for the Queen to be in, is it not?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, the court did rule that the advice he gave to the Queen was unlawful. It said it wasn't going to start going into uh, questions of his motives. And so I suppose, as you say, that's uh, at least some... Uh, you know, the crumb of comfort for him that uh, they didn't actually say that he was Telling lies deliberately, or deliberately misleading the Queen, but it is obviously an uncomfortable position for the Queen to be brought into the centre of political controversy in this way, and also for the whole business of how she is obliged to follow the advice of government. That that should come under a spotlight, because the the way in which the British Constitution works is that uh, there is just no question that simply the Queen acts on the advice of her ministers, and there ought not to be. Any conflict, but then in normal circumstances, her prime minister has uh, a majority in the House of Commons. And before the Fixed Term Parliaments Act came in a few years ago, what would happen if the uh, if the prime minister lost the confidence of Parliament, and so if he lost his majority, was simply that there would be a vote of confidence, and there would be an election. And uh, and now, of course, the problem with this fixed-term Parliament Act is that there are only a couple of rather cumbersome routes to getting an election. So Boris Johnson, if he wants to call one, he has to get a two-thirds majority, which he tried to do, and uh, the Commons wouldn't give it to him. And then the opposition can try it with a, a, a vote of no confidence in the prime minister. And if they are in the government, and if they succeed in their vote of no confidence, then there's 14 days for another government to be assembled before you have to go and have a general election. But I think the uh, opposition, although they keep, they, they all said today that Boris Johnson should resign. Uh, there's no sign that they're quite ready to pull the trigger with regard to a vote of no confidence just yet.
0: Is is there any idea? Have you any idea how the judgment's been received within the Conservative Party? Are, are they circling the wagons, or, or does it depend on which wing of the party you're on? I suppose. The, the whip's office sent them
2: all, the Conservative MPs, a message saying, don't make any public comment for now on this, uh, you know, and don't tweet about this judgment or don't say anything about what you what you think until we kind of get our various ducks in a row. Some of them on the more uh, liberal wing of Parliament have been pretty, of, of the Conservative Party, have been pretty clear that they approve of it. Uh, they're, they're They're being pretty quiet for now. I think, though, that there probably will have to be some pressure on uh, on some of the law officers, like, so for, for example, the Attorney General. I think what you're going to have uh, find over the next couple of days in Parliament is that Parliament will ask to see the legal advice that Johnson was given. And if they can't get the legal advice, they'll at least try to question the Attorney General, Geoffrey Cox. They might try to question the Lord Chancellor, Robert Buckland, as well. And so it, it could be uh, that you know, Parliament makes life uncomfortable in terms of trying to cast some sort of light on exactly what legal advice did Boris Johnson get. And again, just to kind of open up to public scrutiny exactly what was happening in Downing Street as they were making that decision to suspend Parliament.
0: Now, if Boris Johnson, you mentioned, you mentioned in an in analysis piece for irishtimes.com um, that, that uh, Boris Johnson might need to change his approach entirely. And if he was to do that, what, what might that look like? Just trying to sort of uh, map out a, a possible route through this, this crisis.
2: Well, if you look at Boris Johnson's political predicament, it is that the central promise of his premiership is that he will get Britain out of the European Union, deal or no deal, do or die, on the 31st of October. Now, Parliament has cut off this route whereby uh, he can just go with a no-deal Brexit because it said that... He's got, you know, if he hasn't got a deal, then he's got to uh, seek an extension. Uh, the courts have made sure that he can't really avoid that uh, ruling or that law uh, passed by Parliament because it won't let him shut down Parliament and won't let him uh, circumvent the law. So the only way he can keep his promise is to do a deal and to uh, secure a deal with the European Union and to get that deal through Parliament. Uh, both of those are quite difficult. And the first difficulty is that as of now, Boris Johnson's position with regard to the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland backstop are so far away from anything that the European Union could agree to that uh, we're nowhere near getting any kind of a deal. second problem is how do you get it through Parliament? Uh, if you were to try to put together a majority in Parliament, you would probably say he needs to get almost all of the Conservative Party. So he's got to get the broad bulk of the Conservative Party, uh, plus those people who he purged, those 21 MPs. Most of those probably would vote for a deal. and But then he's left with these uh, holdouts, the hard Eurosceptics and the European Research Group. And the key to unlocking an awful lot of their votes is the DUP. And the 10 votes of the DUP are not perhaps so significant in themselves but the fact is if the dup say we can live with this deal and it doesn't offend our unionist uh, principles then uh, you know it's very hard for most conservatives to say well we're going to be more unionist than the dup so if he gets the numbers of uh, conservative right wing rebels down to about 10 and he has the DUP and he's got his, uh, his purged ex-conservatives. Then he probably needs to get about 20, 10 or 20 votes from Labour. And there is a group of uh, Labour MPs like Neil Kinnock uh, and some other or Stephen Kinnock uh, rather, son of Neil Kinnock, um, who uh, and they want a deal and they want to back a deal and they want to get this thing done. If he can persuade enough of them to cross the floor, then he could conceivably, you know, get a deal through Parliament. But it's very difficult uh, to see how he gets there from here, because uh, he's still offering very little in terms of uh, compromise on the backstop. He's basically saying the backstop has to go. And all he's really offering is that you could have an all island area for animal health, and really for very little else. And that's just nowhere near enough for uh, what Ireland or the European Union want.
0: If, if, for instance, um, he he did go as far as an Northern Ireland backstop that the DUP rejected, I mean, is there any is there any situation circumstances that that Labour would vote for any uh, Johnson deal or, or feel like it was forced to?
2: I don't know. I, I think Labour probably wouldn't. I mean, certainly the Labour Party will not. Uh, you know, as
0: you know, the Labour leadership
2: won't vote for it. I mean, obviously certain MPs. I suppose what you could get to is a situation where the Europeans and Johnson agreed to a deal. So that uh, you know, he he agreed a deal which was satisfactory to the European Union, including Ireland. And that then when he's taking it back to Parliament, that the European Union would say, by the way, this is the last chance for any deal. And if you ask us for an extension, we're not giving it to you. So then uh, MPs would be faced with the choice of accepting this deal or having an inevitable no-deal Brexit on the 31st of October, because obviously what the law says is that Johnson, if he can't get a deal through, he has to ask the Europeans for a deal. But the European Union, they have to agree unanimously to give it to uh, to give him an extension. And so, uh, if they uh, if they say we're not going to do that, then that could concentrate minds. And well, there is one. Uh, you know, school of thought which says that one of the reasons why you've never been able to get a deal through Parliament at Westminster is because it's never been a binary choice. Everybody always felt that they could still get the thing they really want, a second referendum, a softer Brexit, whatever it happens to be. Whereas if you're concentrating minds and saying this is, you if you don't accept this deal, then we're definitely leaving without a deal, and here is the European Union saying so, then perhaps you know, you could get, uh, you know, certainly more Labour MPs uh, moving over and you could perhaps find a majority in that way.
0: I suppose the other option, although it does appear a long shot, is the, the, the fact that he is he's trapped somewhat uh, might give Johnson the excuse to ask for that Brexit extension and maybe to have an election before, before leaving. Um, is that a possibility at all?
2: It's certainly a possibility. And as the law stands, you know, it it may be what he has to do. The problem with it is that the only way that uh, the Conservatives can win a general election is if they squeeze the Brexit party vote down to almost nothing. And if Boris Johnson, like Theresa May, fails to deliver on his promise to deliver on time, and he goes into an election saying, I tried to deliver Brexit on time, but Parliament wouldn't let me. He sounds like Theresa May, and uh, and so I think you know if he does actually go and seek the extension, write the letter to Donald Tusk asking if, you know to delay Brexit by three months, I think that does uh, pull the rug from under his electoral strategy somewhat, and uh, you know perhaps he's going to have to do it, and maybe he's depending on the unpopularity of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the, uh, you know, splits within the opposition and hoping that the liberal Democrat vote will be high enough that it will rob Labour of some seat. Uh, But it seems like a much riskier strategy to actually, you know, for him, who has said so many times, I will under no circumstances ask for an extension of Article 50. If he actually does it and then goes into an election, that doesn't sound like the best start to an electoral campaign.
0: Now, it was quite a 24 hours for the Labour Party, uh, of course. You were at the party conference in Brighton, which had plenty of rancour, but did end up with votes in favour of of Corbyn's position not to commit to remain uh, right now. Uh, And obviously now this judgment is is a huge boost to the party. Have yesterday's votes brought any clarity to their position or is it or, or in a way has it just muddied it further?
2: I think it's brought some clarity in the sense that uh, you really had a choice between two options. One was uh, that, uh, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's favorite favorite option, which is the one that prevailed, which says uh, at the next general election, Labour will promise to uh, negotiate a new, improved uh, withdrawal agreement. Which would involve remaining in the European Customs Union, having a very close relationship with the single market, and that uh, it would then uh, negotiate that within three months and within six months it would hold a referendum where it would put that as the leave option and and the other option would be to remain in the European Union. And uh, what Jeremy Corbyn says is, and we will decide uh, the party in a one-day special conference after we get the deal, we will decide which way the party is going to uh, campaign in a referendum. And what uh, the other motion, which was defeated on uh, on Monday, what they were saying, what that was saying was actually... Let's just say right now that we're going to have a referendum and we're going to campaign for Remain because we are a Remain party. Almost all of our members favour remaining in the European Union and a huge majority of our voters do as well. And so what uh, uh, you know, now the, the problem with that, you know, the, the second option, is that effectively what you'd be saying is that, uh, you know, when you go on the uh, campaign trail in the election, you're saying we're going to go and we are going to negotiate a new deal from the European Union, but we are then definitely going to recommend that you vote against that deal. Now, what the current position, Jeremy Corbyn's position, and the official position now is, is we are going to go and we're going to negotiate a deal. And we might recommend that you reject that deal, and I think the expectation is that if you did put it to a vote at a special conference, Labour probably will recommend that uh, you know, that that, uh, uh, that people vote Remain in any new referendum, where I think that. Corbyn and his allies feel as if they might have found a sweet spot, is that Boris Johnson and the Conservatives are saying, we're getting out deal or no deal, and we're not going to allow anybody to have any say on the matter, and uh, we're just definitely going full steam ahead for Brexit. The Liberal Democrats are now saying, we're just going to cancel Brexit through an act of parliament and we're not going to consult the people. And what uh, Labour is now saying is the only main party in England at least is now saying is we give the people the final say. So what they're hoping there is that that will be enough to satisfy most Remainers uh, who will just hope that, you know, they can get a referendum and win it. uh, But also that it will calm some of the Labour voters who voted for Brexit and want Brexit to happen. But it will say, look, we're not ruling out Brexit. We're not determined to stop Brexit. All we're saying is that we're going to give the people a final say. And that just might mean they hope that those uh, you know, that, that, that fewer of those uh, Brexit-leaning Labour voters will go off somewhere else.
0: Fascinating situation. Dennis Staunton, thank you very much for joining us from London. Next to Israel, and a political crisis of a different kind for Benjamin Netanyahu, who has dominated the country's political scene for two decades after the centrist Blue and White Party, led by former military chief Benny Gantz, won more seats in last week's election than the Prime Minister's Likud. Neither party has a clear route to majority, but the inconclusive result in the country's second election in five months is widely seen to have signalled the beginning of the end of the Netanyahu era. Talks are underway, but with Gantz resisting the prospect of a unity government, there is no obvious way forward. Mark Weiss joins us on the line from Jerusalem to tell us where things stand. Mark, though the election brought a bad result for Netanyahu, it seems he's not finished quite yet. Can you tell us uh, what the latest is on the talks today?
1: Yes, Netanyahu is certainly not going out without a fight. Um, the latest situation is that President Reuven Rivlin is determined um, to forge a um, national unity government. Um, This would presumably involve uh, the two biggest parties, Netanyahu's Likud, along with the centrist Blue and White, and maybe um, other parties as well, probably including the uh, right-wing secular Yisrael Beitenu party. Uh, Although we're only now at the very, very early uh, initial stages of negotiations, and it's not clear how this will play out. Uh, In any case, it's probably going to take a couple of months um, before we know finally if there will or there won't be a national unity government and and the fate of Benjamin Netanyahu and the rest of the Israeli political system. Uh, complicating matters significantly is the fact that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is faced with three separate corruption charges and next week He will attend a pre-trial hearing with the Attorney General. Uh, At some stage after that, the Attorney General will decide whether to indict Netanyahu on those corruption charges. If he is indicted, um, that changes the whole political um,
0: uh,
1: picture here, because blue and white say they will not serve with Netanyahu if he is indicted on corruption charges.
0: So if he's in if for instance he's not indicted does that uh, does that gives a better chance for a unity government and particularly might open the door to Netanyahu as a rotating prime minister
1: Yes definitely so the only problem is of course is that the two separate clocks are ticking there's a political clock uh, there is a limited time uh, the politicians have to decide uh, what will happen if a government will be formed or not or we have to go to the third elections in Israel within a year. And there's the judicial clock The uh, on that front. Uh, we're talking probably December, maybe November, before the Attorney General makes his decision. So it's possible that the coalition talks will drag out until then, until we know the fate of Netanyahu's criminal charges.
0: Now, there were suggestions that Netanyahu was going to introduce a law uh, to give himself immunity from prosecution if he had won the election. I, I guess uh, now that that's off the table, and I suppose that's a considerable blow to him.
1: We assume that was Netanyahu's plan, uh, what we call here an immunity coalition, that he would uh, gather his natural um, uh, coalition partners from the right wing and the religious parties. He would give them basically um, most of the demands, what they want. And in return, they would uh, vote in favor of an immunity bill, which means that uh, Netanyahu would be able to continue serving as prime minister, even though criminal charges may be um, uh, he may be indicted on criminal charges. Of course, when he failed to win a majority of Knesset members in, in the election last week, that went out the window. That is no longer an option.
0: Now, if a unity government is is thrashed out in in the months ahead. Um, uh, can we say that we've seen the end of of those far right uh, parties, that uh, religious parties that Netanyahu has has aligned himself with? Um, I, I mean, it, it's, it, does it seem unlikely Gantz would go into government with them?
1: Well, it's an interesting question because um, when we're talking about a national unity government, um, the Likud have made it quite clear that uh, the Likud negotiating team is negotiating on behalf of the entire right-wing religious Likud bloc, 55 Knesset members, uh, and not just uh, on behalf of the Likud party itself. So certainly Netanyahu envisages a national unity government as including all his uh, natural coalition partners. This, of course, is unacceptable to uh, Benny Gantz and the Blue and White Party. They insist that when they sit down opposite the Likud negotiators, they are only negotiating with the Likud. So, as I said, it's very early stages and it remains to be seen how this will play out. Who eventually will be part of a national unity coalition if we get, even get to that stage.
0: Now, whatever happens in, in, in those weeks ahead, does this rejection of Netanyahu's policies in last week's election signal maybe a change of, of direction ahead for Israel and maybe, maybe a little bit le, le, or less hawkish and more conciliatory?
1: Maybe it does, but remember, it wasn't a very uh, sharp uh, shift against Netanyahu. It was a relatively moderate um, uh, sway in votes away from uh, both Likud, his party drop seats, and his partners. Um, I think it represents more than anything else um, a state uh, amongst the Israeli uh, public a bit fed up with um, Netanyahu. He's been in power more than 10 years. They certainly, uh, the people I think this time who decided for the first time not to vote for him, um, realize that um, he is using his own um, legal problems very much. Uh, That's his priority. And he should have, um, uh, and certainly in a country like Israel, all the problems, particularly security issues, of course, that Israel faces, that are more important issues than Netanyahu's criminal charges. And I think... um, the Israeli segment of the Israeli public that decided this time to switch votes from uh, Netanyahu um, do not want his uh, criminal uh, issues to be the dominant factor anymore.
0: Now, one of the more interesting uh, developments in recent days saw the, the, the Arab Joint List, which won the third largest number of seats in the election, um, saying it was going to back Gantz for Prime Minister, al- although crucially three of the 13 members of uh, from one faction said they would abstain. How significant is that, is that that fact of the Arab Party coming out and recommending a prime minister? And does, what does it say about the future?
1: The Israeli Arabs uh, make 20% of the population, but they have never been part uh, of a coalition government in all the years since Israel's existence in 1948. This is only the second time that they have supported Uh, recommended uh, a Zionist candidate for prime minister. The last time was in 1992, uh, when two separate Arab parties uh, recommended Yitzhak Rabin. Um, There are commentators here who believe this is the beginning of a very significant change, um, a willingness uh, by the uh, Israel's Arab minority to fully participate more uh, in the Israeli uh, political scene, to have more influence. And the Arab sector, it must say, has a lot of problems. Uh, the crime rate in the Arab sector is, is very significant. Uh, just overnight, another Israeli Arab was shot dead just outside a police station, coincidentally, in the northern city of uh, Acre. Uh, shootings in the Arab sector are a weekly occurrence. They want this issue dealt with. They also want more funds for housing uh, and uh, more land to build on. So there are very important issues for the uh, Israeli Arab uh, minority. And maybe they're realizing finally that they will only uh, get movement on these issues if at least they are um, supporting the government from outside.
0: The other issue that this uh, election bring, brings to mind is obviously this, uh, the tr- Trump's deal of the century for um, the, uh, the peace process there. Um, that was supposed to be unveiled after the election. Do we know what's going to happen to that now?
1: Well, it's a case of delay after delay after delay. Um, uh, finally, the, um, the Trump administration decided they would wait until the end of the Israeli election and a few days afterwards would finally release the details of this plan, which, by the way, has already been totally rejected by the Palestinian side. So in any event, it's probably going to be stillborn. However, the um, ongoing chaos in the Israeli political system. The uncertainty uh, has led to another delay. And it's very doubtful now that the Trump administration will um, reveal details of the plan until an Israeli government is sorted out. And if we go to new elections early next year, that's probably another uh, delay of uh, four or five months at least.
0: Mark Weiss in Jerusalem, thank you for joining us. That's all we have time for today. Thanks to Dennis Daunton and Mark Weiss and to producer Jennifer Ryan. For these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Goodbye for now.